1: I think we are definitely living in a a new age.
2: The question is, what is the perspective for the European Union after the Brexit?
1: The open question in my view is, will Europe
2: be the third player or will we fall behind?
1: Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And one of the three voices you just heard was the next leader of Germany's governing party. We just don't know yet which one? The three candidates face off in an election on Saturday. We'll fill you in with all you need to know about them and how this fits into the race to succeed Angela Merkel, whether you're listening before or after the results come through. And by the way, you'll also be able to follow the election live via a live blog on politico.eu. We'll also talk about the fallout from last week's storming of the US Capitol, In particular, what the social media bans imposed on the President of the United States mean for the future of regulation of tech platforms, and how all of that might impact Europe. And later in this episode, you'll learn about what it takes to be a good country, and how European countries stack up.
2: I publish this study every year called the Good Country Index, which measures how much countries contribute to the world outside their borders. And people often notice, sometimes quite angrily, how it's all European countries at the top of the index. And that's the reason, because they've experienced for themselves what the benefits are of closer collaboration. It works.
1: That's according to British author Simon Anholt. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. So it's a warm welcome to our podcast panel, Rimontas in Paris. Hi, Reem.
3: Hello, everyone.
1: Uh, hi to Matt Karnitschnik in Berlin. Hi there. And joining us this week, our tech editor, Nick Vineker, also like me in Brussels, but of course, socially distant. Uh, so we're both working from
4: home. Hi, Nick. Hi, good to be here.
1: Great to have you with us. Um, So let's kick off by talking about the big uh, political event in Europe the coming days. That's the election of the next leader of the Christian Democratic Union, Germany's ruling party, the party of Angela Merkel. It's going to happen in a virtual party conference taking place on Friday and Saturday. The election itself is on Saturday. Matt, did you want to just first break down briefly how it's going to work, uh, just, just the mechanics of how they're going to choose the candidates,
5: and then we'll get into the candidates. Sure. Well, the convention is going to convene on uh, Friday evening, and you'll have speeches by Merkel and some of the other leading lights in the CDU. And then on Saturday, they will come back and listen to speeches by the three candidates running for the leadership. And then there'll be a vote, probably just the first round. And then assuming that uh, none of the three candidates gets over 50%, there'll be a second round to decide the winner. So we should have the results by mid-afternoon on Saturday, right, and it's a thousand and one delegates, I think
1: uh, party delegates is that right
5: That's right, and most of these people are party functionaries from the German states they're not prominent figures for the most part,
1: okay, and so we realize that some of you may be listening to this as the election happens or perhaps even after it's happened, but we're going to give you a guide that makes sure you are up to speed on whoever the winner is so Matt let's uh, run down the three candidates we've given you the challenge of trying to kind of give a potted summary of each of them in 30 seconds. You have one advantage. 30 there. seconds
5: for all three or 30, 30 seconds? seconds each.
1: We're pretty generous. Yeah, ah. I, you're, you're probably thinking for some of them, I don't know if I've got 30 seconds, but let's see how we, yeah. how we go. <laughs> so in 30 seconds, tell us all we need to know about Armin Laschet starting now.
5: Well, everything I know about him, I would start that he is from North Rhine-Westphalia, as are all of the other candidates, the other two candidates, that he is a close ally of Angela Merkel's and he has been governor or minister president, as they call it in Germany, of North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the largest state in Germany for the past couple of years. He's very much a moderate. He's also a devout Catholic and a former MEP. OK,
1: just made it. Well done. Nailed it. Um, I'm trying to think if there's any uh, fun it facts to add, but I can't immediately think of any. I think you did a, a good job there. So let's move to the uh, the next one. Um, I'm just looking on our script. It's so professional. have even done this alphabetical order. It's like uh, Dallas and Dynasty in the old days. Um, so Friedrich Mertz is next, Matt. 30 seconds on Friedrich
5: Mertz, starting now. Merz is something of the prodigal son of the CDU. He was a contender for the leadership of the party some 20 years ago, lost out to Angela Merkel, and has spent the last 20 years or so in the political desert, for the most part, working as a corporate lawyer and earning many millions of dollars in the process. He was recently the chairman of BlackRock in Germany. He's seen as a very conservative figure compared to the others. Okay,
1: just uh, made it. We can delve into these a little bit more. I'm sure uh, Reem and Nick may have a a question or two. So let's go straight to uh, the third contender. 30 seconds, Matt. Your specialist subject, Norbert Rutkin, and your
5: time starts now. Ricken is a foreign policy specialist. He's the chairman of Germany's uh, Foreign Affairs Committee in the Bundestag in the parliament. He is also, like Laschet, a political moderate. But like Meritz, he also has a difficult history with Merkel, who once fired him as a minister. He is somebody who would pursue closer ties with the United States. He's very much a transatlanticist and also a uh, devoted European. Okay, right.
1: Nice. Nice work. Okay, so those are the three. Um, So let's let's bring in uh, Reem and Nick. Reem, anything you want to... Ask Matt anything or anything, any observations
3: from watching this play out from Paris. Uh, I do have one question, which is, you know, widening the lens, how much of a change will it be for Germany's European partners, depending on who sort of wins this contest?
5: I think it could be pretty jarring if it is somebody they don't really have a lot of experience with, like Friedrich Meretz, for example, who's never been a, a German minister and who's really been out of German politics, at least frontline German politics for most of the last 20 years. I think there would be much more comfort with somebody like Rutgen, who has a lot of contacts across Europe and does a lot of sort of parliamentary, cross parliamentary meetings and spends a lot of time in Brussels and so forth, or Lachette, who speaks French and, you know, was an MEP and might be a little bit more versed in a lot of the uh, European issues than uh, than somebody like Friedrich Merz would be.
4: Mm. Nick? Two short questions. Who's going to win? And secondly, do any of these people uh, see the China issue differently than the current government?
5: Yeah. So I, I think that right now we don't really have a good bead on that because it's so close. My personal expectation is that – Rutkin will win. Really? I'm um, this is a dark horse candidate. Okay. I'm going out on a limb here. Can I
1: just say to our listeners if you're listening to this after Saturday afternoon it's not Rutkin just just skip past this next part. <laughs> yeah, go ahead.
5: <laughs> go, go ahead. You know, I like to take controversial. Yeah. That's positions. that is interesting. Give us your give us your logic. The reason the reason for that is that I think, you know, there will be a second round and that in the second round that Röntgen would be more likely to get the votes of the people who supported Laschet in the first round than Merz, who, as I said before, is a much more conservative profile and is seen as more of a polarizing figure within the CDU. Uh, Röntgen has also made clear that he might be willing to step back and let somebody else run for chancellor, which is another part of this story that uh, we can also discuss. But coming back to your question on on China I think that there are substantial differences Gutkin again has taken a a much more hard line on China urging the, the government to you know embrace more the American pro- approach if you will towards China whereas I think uh, Lachet who comes from a region that is home to a lot of German Car parts makers and machinery makers and so forth where trade with China is really important to the economy has uh, really kind of pushed more the the, the Merkel line and said, you know, we we don't want to go too far in sort of angering the Chinese. We need to continue to have good relations with them. And with merits, I, I suspect that he would also take a, a similar approach to that. He's, he's very much focused on the economy, on the, on, on the importance of the economic relationship. Mm. Well, that brings us on, Matt, as you said, to the fact that
1: whoever is – Elected CDU leader is not automatically the centre right slash conservative candidate uh, for chancellor. So, you just, a lot of our listeners will know this, but for those who don't, uh, the CDU has an alliance with the CSU in Bavaria, the Christian Social Union, and together they designate a candidate for chancellor traditionally that has been the leader of the CDU, but not always. So if it isn't one of the three who get elected at the weekend, you know, who are
5: the others who are in the picture as possible candidates for the for the centre-right? Right. So the main candidate is the leader of Bavaria, the minister-president of Bavaria, Marco Söder, who is a very popular politician just generally. I think he has a kind of easygoing demeanor that a lot of German likes, like he has a kind of uh, gregarious manner and everyman personality that that seems to resonate with a lot of people. Because if you look at the polls, he is by far ahead of everyone else. Right,
1: in terms of popularity, of all the potential. In terms of popularity
5: and also in comparison to these other candidates. Mm. Um, So, you know, there's a real chance that we could see... A push, or I think it's inevitable at this point that we will see a push for Söder to be the conservative chancellor candidate. But it's not clear when they're going to make that decision. And it, it could be also, or probably will be, very contentious. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion around this. There's another candidate as well, Yen uh, Spahn, who is the health minister, who's also seen his popularity rise uh, quite a lot over the past several months. He's taken a hit more recently because of some of the problems around the vaccine and the handling of the uh, pandemic in Germany. But he he's definitely a contender. He's much younger than the other candidates. He's, he's only 40 years old. But he would also represent a major generational change for the party, which, as I wrote in a piece today, has, has traditionally been a bastion of the old white man. So I'll get a lot of hate mail for that i 'm sure but uh, Probably not. you know he 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 also is a departure in in other ways he's he 's uh, openly gay and he 's married, and you know th- this is a big deal in a party that uh, until recently opposed same sex marriage, so there are a lot of options on the table here, and the interesting thing about this is because they don 't have a very well defined process for deciding who's who their candidate is going to be is very much up in the air and as a result you know germany's future and the question of who is going to succeed merkel is also completely unclear less than a year before the election yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll follow you. There you go. Whoever
1: whoever wins on Saturday and whoever finally gets the nod, you've already had a kind of basic guide to everything you need to know about them. And we'll, we'll delve in deeper once we know who's in charge of the CDU and who's the uh, candidate for chancellor. But let's switch topics now. And um, talk about a bit about the big story. I mean, big story doesn't really seem to cover it, to be honest, but this is something obviously that happened just after we recorded last week's panel, the storming of the US Congress and all the fallout that's come from that, in particular in the social media world. And that's uh, partly why we have you here, Nick, because obviously Twitter and Facebook suspended or banned Donald Trump from their platforms and that created a whole new debate. how's that been playing out in Europe? Do you think what are the what have been the the European uh, reactions or takes on that? And what are the re- possible repercussions now?
4: Yeah, it took a couple of days for uh, the European leaders to agree on a line, and the line seems to be we don't think that the platform should have the right to ban. Uh, head of state like uh, like Trump. Uh, so we got that from Angela Merkel. Uh, we got it similar from, I believe, the, the French government and also from Alex Stubb, the Finnish conservative, saying they, they don't agree. But I think that message was a bit truncated because what the Europeans were really saying is the platform shouldn't have the power to do it. It should be the law that decides what sort of activity is permitted or not on social media. And it was a way of saying, hey, we've got uh, the solution. Our Digital Services Act is the, the solution here. Now, whether that's correct or not, whether the DSA would really stop Organizing of a seditionist movement on social media—that that's uh, up for questioning. But that was the initial reaction,
1: right? And when they, when one of the things that struck me when people said it shouldn't be the social media companies making these judgments—you know—it should be done by by law. But if we're talking about a very fluid situation where decisions have to be taken very quickly, do they envisage that? you know, the companies would still have to make that decision, but they would be guided by law? Or would there be an independent regulator or body that actually made that decision?
4: Well, you've put your finger right into the mess, I would want to say, because it really goes around and around in circles. The lawmakers, they decide, well, actually, it's going to have to be the social media groups that have their own terms and conditions and sort of decide on those. And then the social media groups say, well, this should really all be defined in the law because we don't want the responsibility. So what you end up with is a sort of messy in between where the you know, the lawmakers say, well, here are the broad parameters. You write these into your terms and conditions, and you have to enforce them. And if you fail to enforce them, then it will be, again, a matter for the law and for, for our regulators. The problem is in this situation, for example, you know, the DSA foresees a sort of penalty process, but it would take a long time. It wouldn't just say nobody would kind of come in overnight and say, hold on, pull the plug on Donald Trump. That wouldn't happen in a European scenario. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's not not the silver bullet.
1: Right. Reem, I think you wanted to chime in here with some thoughts about the whole issue of deplatforming, and, you know, when it's justified and how effective it can be.
3: Yeah. And I'd like to just start by saying, I think Donald Trump's ascendance and rhetoric presented a uniquely complex moment for which the companies were not prepared. I do think of, you know, the ISIS precedent. So that is something that I used to cover in detail. And it was one of the First major cases that brought up these issues. You know, in essence, is freedom of speech complete? Do you have unfettered freedom of speech to say whatever you want online? And in fact, the very Supreme Court, American Supreme Court case, which determines this, says as much that you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater, for example. So there are limits to freedom of speech. And what we saw with ISIS or ISIS fans, acolytes, um, members, however we want to refer to the various degrees of of allegiance to it, is that these very same platforms, uh, it took them a while to figure out how to deal with them. And for a while, it allowed these sort of ISIS uh, fans or members to talk to each other across countries, across continents, to create an echo chamber that created you know, critical mass and connected people who wouldn't otherwise be connected. And we saw that actually translate in real life into caravans taking people from like Europe all the way to Syria. And finally, you know, the platforms came up with a way to kind of try to put an end to it. And they deplatformed a lot of them. Uh, for a while, it, it felt like a whack-a-mole game. But actually, eventually, they managed to sort of break that dynamic. And it, it did have uh, an effect. I completely like completely understand that this also raises the question of are you just pushing the conversation to other more fringe platforms and yeah i'm not pretending to have all the answers i'm just saying that there are some precedents that can help us sort of you know get to some some answers the only other point that i would bring up is for the longest time platforms like twitter and facebook resisted acknowledging that they are publishers like us in the media and Twitter and Facebook perhaps are now realising that they too have that kind of responsibility.
1: Right that's certainly how it's been portrayed by some including I think Thierry Breton the European Commissioner you know certainly making the point that he felt a Rubicon had been crossed there that people had said actually this if you're going to start making these kind of decisions you're a publisher you're deciding what you publish
5: and what you don't. Matt what do you make of it just before we go? Well, I think these are private companies, and it should be up to them to decide who they want on their platform and who they don't. And I don't think that Donald Trump will have any difficulty finding a way to get his message out, should he so wish. So, I, I think there's a uh, a lot of hand wringing over this issue, and uh, you know, there really, there really shouldn't be. <laughs>
1: okay, good. Well, on that on that cheerful note. We'll leave things there and we'll come back a little bit later with your recommendations for how to get through lockdown with reading, streaming or or listening or whatever else it may be. But for now, uh, Nick, Reem, and Matt, thanks very much. And now. It's given me
2: a somewhat unusual insight into how governments work and the sorts of things that get discussed and ultimately why the international community is as dysfunctional as it is.
1: Simon Anholt is a British author. He spent 20 years advising governments on how to engage with the rest of the international community. And he's conducted plenty of research and surveys about countries too. Everything from how they're perceived to how they act in the global arena. His latest book is The Good Country Equation, How We Can Repair the World in One Generation. And I started off with the obvious question, what is The Good Country Equation?
2: Basically, what it's, uh, what it's saying is that fundamentally, if you take a step back and have a look at all the challenges facing humanity today, they all cluster into two groups. One of the problems is the way that countries behave, that basically their, their default uh, mode is competition. And they occasionally re- remember to uh, collaborate and cooperate afterwards. And I believe that that's the wrong way round. I think where we are in the world today, because so many of our challenges cannot be tackled without broad cooperation collaboration between countries and other players in the international community. We have to turn it around. We have to get ourselves into a state where the default mode is collaboration and competition takes place sporadically on top of that. It doesn't diminish growth or anything of the sort. And a lot of the book is about how those two things can merge together. And then the the other main problem is the way that people behave. Again, it's a statement of the obvious. But the reason why people continue to behave in ways that don't help us much get out of the various tangles we've got ourselves into is because we're still brought up in a way that more reflects the world of the 20th or even the late 19th century rather than the 21st century, the age of advanced globalization. So what I propose in the book is basically a change in the way that we conceive of governance. And I give some, some fairly powerful self-interest arguments for why it would benefit countries to cooperate and collaborate more. But right now, not in some unimaginable future. And I also make a suggestion about how we can change the way that people behave. And that's very straightforward. That's by basically putting it into the educational system so that we start with the next generation. And that's also incidentally why I use the phrase repairing the world in one generation, because one generation is exactly how long it would take and maybe as long as we've got.
1: And, and how when you say how people behave, so you're saying that the part of the problem is that countries compete too much and kind of cooperate as an afterthought. What is it that people as individuals are doing that's contributing to, to these problems?
2: Well, that one's obviously harder to summarise. It's, it's not really a single uh, set of behaviours. And what I've tried to do when looking at the behaviour of people is simply to work back in quite a sort of logical and mechanistic way, if you like, from the grand challenges. And you can simply work back from those and say, what is it in the behavior of the majority of people? What are the factors that tend to perpetuate these challenges? So for example, climate change, it's the fact that we continue to consume too much, we continue to, to emit too much CO2, we continue to eat too much red meat, whatever you like, you can go to any level of causal behavior. And then you work back from the behavior and you say, okay, so what is it in our education from country to country, or the way that we're brought up, or the values that we absorb when we're growing up that make us think it's okay to do that and haven't ever told us that it's not okay? And then you simply work that into a general accord, a compact on what the new set of 21st century values, virtues, principles, ethics might be. Um, that would change those behaviours in time for the next generation to, to have them on board. And, I mean, this really isn't rocket science. It's going on all around us already. You just have to take a look at uh, Greta Thunberg, for example, to see how education will bring up children in a way that makes them run towards the, gra- the global challenges rather than run away from them, which is what previous generations have done. My argument is simply that, for example, teaching climate change in Swedish schools, which is partly what's produced Um, Greta Thunberg's approach, uh, we know it works. The problem is that it's all fragmented. None of these initiatives are bigger than a single school district uh, or a country, and they're all pushing different uh, ideas of what are the grand challenges. I just think that right now things are urgent enough to justify us saying, let's do it everywhere and all at once now Mm. and get together and have a great big global conversation. What are the values that we all sign up to? We all agree and let's all input them and that's the project which i call the good generation which i describe in the book
1: and how if we if we look at a concrete example now which uh, i think has obviously to be uh, the coronavirus pandemic you know where do the lessons that you have drawn over the years where would they apply to this pandemic because i think some people might look and say well actually what we've seen is countries doing different things and in a sense that may have been helpful for some of those countries. You know, obviously, countries like South Korea are held up as a good example. Whereas if you kind of globalise all of this and try and come up with a, a kind of common solution, you know, that would have taken a long time and may not have produced the best result.
2: Well, I absolutely agreed. I mean, I think common solutions are almost always a bad idea. And that certainly wouldn't be what I'd advocate. What I advocate is better agreement and better preparation as an international system beforehand. So we can very quickly take advantage of the solutions that appear to be working best and experiment with them, try them in other countries and understand rapidly what the different contexts are and how they affect the necessary solutions. The problem is that the the it's almost as if the very idea of talking to other countries is somehow exotic and unfamiliar and countries only just started to latch onto it three or four months later than they should have done. And when you're talking about a a pandemic, every day counts. So I would hope that we'll be better prepared next time.
1: Mm. How do you view the European Union at the moment, which I would imagine you might see as an attempt to put into practice some of the the ideas that you think are important in terms of of cooperation people sitting around a table try and come up with you know best practice something that's going to work for everyone how do you see the european project in general do you do, you know do you view it positively from that point of view and how do you see it at the moment well let me let
2: me start with a criticism of the european union i think the way that most officials in the EU would describe the way that they work together as much as you've just described it, sitting around a table and trying to come up with this best practice. And I, I think I know why you chose that set of words. It is actually quite a, a little bit more than that that I talk about in the book. One of the things that I'm very enthusiastic about in the book is how bringing different perspectives, especially national and cultural perspectives together, can bring so much more than just endless boring meetings where you discuss best practice and try to improve fractionally on what you've done before. The great thing about bringing people together to discuss domestic problems, bringing people from other countries to, dis- to discuss them, is that it is much more productive. It brings about so much more imaginative, creative thinking, which is what we desperately need these days. The EU on the whole hasn't been very good at doing that because it is in the end of bureaucracy. But having said all of that, I am a big fan of the European Union as a principle, as an idea. You'd have to be um, pretty thick to be a super fan of the way that it operates because it's, it's, it's run and organised by human beings. What do you expect? But the European Union as a conception I've often described as being the noblest experiment in the history of humanity. I mean, the first time in history that a, that a largest group of independent nation states has had the wisdom and the maturity to set aside a tiny part of their precious, precious sovereignty for the sake of mutual advancement. It's still parochial. It's still, it's still inward looking. But, you know, 26, 27 countries looking inwards is a damn sight better than uh, than 26 countries separately looking inwards. And I publish this study every year called the, the Good Country Index, which measures how much countries contribute to the world outside their borders. And people often notice, sometimes quite angrily, how it's all... European countries at the top of the index. And that's the reason, because they've experienced for themselves what the benefits are of closer collaboration. It works.
1: But isn't it also because they are, if you like, wealthier and can then afford to kind of take a more enlightened self-interest sort of point of view?
2: Well, that's a that's a very interesting point, and, and I dispute it for, for two reasons. One, the index itself is set up to try as far as possible to exclude too many direct consequences of wealth. And also the the 35 indicators within the Good Country Index that create the overall rankings, only two of them are directly about money. But, But the other, I think, perhaps more interesting response to your question is that I think the idea that countries can be excused from participating in the international community right up until the point where they're rich enough to be able to afford the luxury of doing so. That's a really dangerous argument, and it's part of the reason why we're in so much trouble today. So I absolutely refute that idea, that this is something that rich countries should be doing more than poor countries.
1: Let me ask you one final one. I don't know if you can answer it, but I noticed, as maybe some older uh, listeners will uh, remember, uh, according to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, the answer to life, the universe and everything is 42. I think your answer is 68 (laughs) yeah, it's it's not quite the same question but if you want to have a shot at explaining how you, I just know from your TED talk that 6.8 kind of turned out to be the answer to everything or the revealing number for you and I wondered if you wanted to try and explain why
2: Yeah, no I I, um, basically that was the answer to the question, how important is it for countries to be seen to be doing good outside their own borders so um, at the time when I i did that calculation i'd been running this this big international opinion poll which i've been running since 2005 which measures this is very different from the good country index the good country index measures behavior this other one which is called the nation brands index measures perceptions so to to summarize as briefly as i can everybody knows it's well proved that countries with that are admired do better it's just like companies if you've got a good brand image you get more trade you get more tourists you get more investment your economy grows faster. And so all countries want good images. And so the question is, what drives a good image? Answer, it's not propaganda. It doesn't make any difference how much money countries spend on bragging about how wonderful they are this appears to have absolutely no effect on their image whatsoever so i did an analysis of the billion data points and what i discovered was that by a factor of 6.8 the most powerful driver of a positive national image is the perception that the country contributes systematically uh, and in a principled way to the international community outside its own borders so in other words a good country Nobody cares how successful, how prosperous, how fast-growing, how powerful you are, compared to just wanting to know that you do no harm to the world that we all live in.
1: Uh, Simon Anholt, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Andrew. And now we're briefly back with our podcast panel with their uh, recommendations for streaming, listening and reading. Uh, Reem, do you want to go first? What would you recommend to our listeners this week?
3: I'm going to do something slightly different than usual, and I'm just going to say, given everything that's going on in the US, I recommend reading the real newspapers and the real media. I recommend reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times. I recommend watching ABC News and NBC News and listening to NPR and watching CNN.
1: Okay, let's eat it for journalism. Uh, Nick, do you you have one?
4: Sure. I got turned on to a podcast called The Drive, uh, which looks at health and medical issues which are certainly on our mind these days uh it's very deep dive on uh, a lot of issues and part of the sort of longevity movement out west in the in the u.s uh i found it very interesting on a lot of different topics nice break from you know quick hit stuff
1: yep sounds good okay we'll include links to that in
5: our show notes matt what have you got So I'm late to this as I am to most things, Mm. but maybe I'm not the only one. Mm. What is it? There's a a show I started watching. It's called The Deuce, and it's by the same guy who developed and wrote The Wire. Oh, really?
1: David Simon?
5: Yeah, David Simon, a former reporter for the Baltimore Baltimore Sun, Sun. I believe. Mm, Yeah. And this is set in uh, Times Square in New York in the 70s. And it's a bit sorted, so put the kids oh. to bed. But uh, very interesting, nonetheless.
1: Okay, I think that's the first time we've had to put a you know PG rating on one of these recommendations. <laughs> but but thanks. I'm going to uh, end with the innocent pleasures of desert island discs.
5: Haven't you done that before?
1: No, I don't think so. I don't uh. think uh, this is the thing. It's an absolute classic. It's a for the few people who don't know what. What I love about it is the people of different generations really love it. There's an archive, I think, going back to the 1950s, you can pick a politician, an actor, um, you know, someone from the arts, whoever you want, someone from the world of sport, and you can get a real kind of insight into how they tick. I mean, obviously, politicians are a little bit guarded, but the basic premise, it's actually great for a podcast, even though it was originally a radio show and remains a very popular radio show. You pick eight records that you would have if you were, you know, cast away on a desert island, and you also get to choose a book and a luxury item. So, it's um, it's great fun. I would recommend it. I listen. We should do that ourselves. Yeah, maybe yeah, we could. Edition. Yeah, maybe we could yeah. do. I'm not sure what the uh, be very what the legal position is on the format, but yeah, it's it does it does tell you a lot about uh, about people. Anyway, as usual, we have been too long, <laughs> but uh, Reem, Nick, and Matt, thanks very much. Thank
5: you. Thank you.
1: And that's all the time we have on this episode. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. We're always looking to welcome more people into the EU Confidential Club. Also, leaving a rating and review will help others to find us. And if you haven't already, please click subscribe or follow so you never miss an episode. If you have ideas for guests or topics for future shows or want to send us some feedback, you can email us anytime at podcast at That's podcast at politico.eu. Until next week, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to executive producer Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening.